Our message this morning is dealing with the subject of salvation again. This could actually be considered a second part to what we shared last week about, you know, how perfect do you need to be to be saved. The message today is deadly faith or saving grace. Deadly faith or saving grace. There are two great errors against which a Christian needs to guard. One is... Presuming that God is so merciful and gracious, we take him for granted and we think we're saved and we're not. You remember reading there in Matthew where Jesus said there'll be a whole crowd. He uses the word many. When Jesus says many, it means many as opposed to few, you know. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and many. Go down that road. That's the majority. Straight is the gate that leads to life and few. So Jesus says, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, they know his name, and they're expecting to enter heaven, and he said, I don't know you. I can't think of anything that would be more terrifying. You're almost better off um, not believing you're saved, not being saved, than believing it and not be saved, to have that terrible utterance. Then there's the other group and they're living in such constant fear of their salvation, they're not enjoying it at all and making everyone around them miserable. They have no peace and no confidence. So you've got these two extremes. It's like salvation by presumption and salvation by works. And we all need to guard against that. What is the biblical balance of how to understand these things and how do we know that we are not saved by or being deceived by a, a deadly faith? A lot of people are. A lot of dear Christian people out there believe in something um, where they're, they're presuming that they can just accept Jesus and live in sin and be saved. You know, not too long ago, when COVID first hit, there was a, a news story about somebody that was trying to get out of prison. You know, they did a big prison release during COVID, and one character individual, Robert R. Courtney, um, he was in prison, he was a pharmacist, and uh, he was sued in 2005, and the case, I think it was uh, $2 billion was ruled against him and the pharmacy he worked for because he had been diluting cancer medication because it was a very expensive medication. He found that he could split it in half and pocket the difference and so people who were needing just the right dose of cancer medication to be saved, and many who would have been saved, died thinking they were getting the real thing, but it was watered down to the point where it was ineffective. And they estimate that there were about 4,200 people that he did this to over a period of 10 years, meaning he was responsible for the deaths of possibly hundreds by giving them diluted medicine. He was upset that he was on the list to be released because of COVID. He didn't want to get COVID. Didn't want to get sick. You, you can hear the irony of all that. And he was protesting that he was going to be exposed to sickness. And here he had diluted everybody's medicine. Well, you know, there are a lot of people that are taking watered down gospel and there's not enough ingredients in there to really heal them. A lot of preachers are preaching a watered-down gospel because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. 
and that's very dangerous. Now, we're going to be talking about six different aspects of faith. We're going to talk about careless faith, cautious faith, conditional faith, continuing faith, confident faith, and calm faith. Talking about what is real saving faith that uh, the Bible talks about. There's uh, some people out there that believe in a form of Calvinism that uh, they basically say, once you're saved, you can't be lost. And um, one writer said, and I won't name him, someone that I think most of us would recognize, God's elect, they believe the saved are called the elect, God's elect are unconditionally secure in Christ. It is impossible for a true believer to ever become an unbeliever or a saved sinner to become unsaved, a redeemed person to become unredeemed, or one of God's elect to become non-elect. To teach otherwise would be to teach nonsense of conditional grace and conditional salvation. To teach it is salvation by works. And then they'll quote some wonderful verses, but they don't quote them in context or explain them properly. They'll quote, all that the Father gives me, this is John 6.37, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You just come to Jesus, you come once, you're nine years old, you come to the altar, you accept Christ, you pray the sinner's prayer, you are saved. And then regardless of what happens to you or what you do or choices you make through your life, you cannot be lost. You've heard this before. You'd be surprised. There's, you know, maybe 50% of professed Christians and evangelicals that believe some version of this. They'll also look at John 6.39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And if you read some of these things by themselves, and then you cut a preacher loose to explain it the way he wants, it could lead some people with a very shallow understanding of what salvation involves. But we need the whole counsel of God. Amen? Let's not pick a verse here and there. If it were true that once you could be saved, you couldn't be lost, you just come and you pray this prayer and you're saved and no matter what happens. And I heard a pastor say, well, you, you know, there's varying levels in heaven. You'll be in heaven, but you may not be as high in heaven. Your rewards will be smaller. If you accept Jesus and then live a wicked life, you'll be there, but you just don't get as much in heaven through eternity. This is literally what they teach. Now, if it was true, it would really be fantastic. Uh, that would be the most wonderful thing, to just know that all you do is say this prayer and then live for the devil the rest of your life and you're still saved. It also would be the most terrible deception to teach that. So, once saved, always saved. Is that true? Once you are saved, can you still be lost? You know, every now and then, um, when we're up at our cabin in the hills in Kovalo. I don't know if you've ever looked on a map at where it is, but periodically in the wintertime we'll meet people up there that are trying to get from Kovalo to Redding or to Sacramento, and they'll hear someone say, you can't get there from here. Because once you get there, and I'll, I'll meet people every now and Kovalo, Kovalo, yeah, I think I went through there sometime. I said, you've never been there. Because you don't go through it. It is like the end of the road. The pavement stops in Kovalo. You maybe heard of some names like um, William Behrens, Henry Hudson, Vitus Bering. Why are those names familiar? 
William Barents, Henry Hudson, Vitus Barents. You know, all three of them have oceans or seas or bays named after them. You got the Hudson River, Hudson Bay. You got the Bering Straits. You got the Bering Sea. Why? They all tried to go across the North Pole and died in the process. And thousands others. They believed that once they kept going north, eventually the water would get warm. And it didn't. Barents, he tried three times. Persistent, brave, but you can't get there from here. Unless you have a submarine, now they can do it. The idea that you can just accept Jesus and then live for the devil, continue living a life of sin is unbiblical. Don't believe that. It's not true. Now, I don't want to take away your security. I want you to have real security. Amen? Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. Now, what does that imply? Why would Jesus say, I will not blot his name from the book of life? If you do what? If you overcome. That means daily you strive against sin. You strive to uh, destroy the carnal nature and, and uh, follow the spiritual nature. Your name will not be blotted from the book of life. Because some people's names will be blotted from the book of life. Moses said, Lord, don't, don't destroy Israel. Take my name from your book. And God said, he who has sinned against me, his name I'll take out of my book. God's got a book. Save people in the book of life. Names can be taken out. Does that make sense? But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 2 Peter 2.20 for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, right here it talks about people who have escaped, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, if they are again entangled therein and become overcome, the last end for them is worse than the beginning. And it says it's like a dog who returns to his vomit and a pig who is washed to wallowing in the mire. But he's describing people who are saved but then turn back. Doesn't Jesus tell a parable about a sower that sows seed and some of the seed falls on the ground and it does sprout. But then because the ground has no depth, it ends up drying up or it's choked by the weeds. But it did sprout. You want the good seed that's going to bear fruit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, this is a good verse. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves. I didn't write this, so take this up with the Lord. Nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, and such were some of you, past tense. So there's all kinds of people that are on this list that are saved from these things that will be in the kingdom. But he's saying those that continue in these things are not going to be there. So just because you prayed a prayer and then said, I'm going to live for the devil, that doesn't work that way. Let me give you a couple of other verses here. I've, I've got to watch the clock, and I'm going to ration how many verses I can share because there's hundreds on this subject. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received... It says, they receive the gospel, in which you stand. They received and stand in the gospel, and by which you are being saved. You notice that verb? They're being saved. It's called sanctification. If, do you hear a condition there? If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
You're being saved. You stand, but you need to hold fast. Amen? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. What does Paul imply? Is it possible to depart? You see, after you come to Jesus, he does not take away your freedom of choice. He will never let go of you, but you don't lose your freedom to let go. John 15, 2, talking about the vine. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. And these are branches in Christ, but they are fruitless. They, they don't have the fruits of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, eventually you should start looking like a Christian. There should be love and joy and peace and long-suffering, goodness, faith, meekness, so forth, right? You've heard the old expression, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it flies like a duck, what is it? It's a duck. And so Christians don't just say, oh, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just not a practicing one. I had someone say that to me once. So I'm a Christian. I'm just not a practicing one. There is no such an animal. You might know about Jesus. And I know people say, oh, yeah, I went to church when I was young, or I've got a cross, hangs from the mirror in my car, keep me safe when I'm drunk and driving. It doesn't work that way. You either are following Christ and his teachings, or you're not. You're either surrendered, and he is your Lord, and he calls the shots, or he doesn't. The Bible says that uh, he rules in our heart, or sin rules in our heart. You can't have both. So these verses are pretty clear. So we need to have faith, but we're saved by faith, but we need a faith that's realistic and cautious. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. We're doing a little bit of that right now. What does this imply? He's talking to the church of Corinth. He says, examine yourself once or from time to time. You get, you get to check and see, am I in the faith? Doesn't mean you're spending all your time, you know, evaluating your belly button. Christians should be looking at Christ, but every now and then you got to say, do I have the fruits? Is there something wrong with my life? Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you're disqualified? Paul makes it as plain as it can be that we need to every now and then evaluate, am I growing? Am I following the Lord? Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you might seem through unbelief to have fallen short. Now, the Bible talks about not being fearful, and here he says, let us fear. Job was a man that feared God. I mentioned him last week. A perfect, upright man feared God. So are we to live in fear? Are we to live in peace? Let me see if I can explain that with maybe a couple of illustrations. I heard a story. This lady and her family, they were in Florida, and they were touring an ancient mansion there. And as they went into the master bedroom, it was a beautiful, ornate, ancient mansion. And, and the bedspread said, be sure to immediately wash hands thoroughly after touching. And the curtains had a little safety pin. The sign said, be sure to wash hands thoroughly immediately after touching. So, of course, they didn't touch anything. On her way out, she asked the guide, she said, what kind of chemicals are these things treated with? 
And he smiled and said, they're not treated with anything. We just found when we said, don't touch the bedspread, it didn't work. But if the people thought there was something radioactive on the bedspread, they didn't touch it. He said, fear is a good thing. <laughs> if you put a sign on the wall, in the hall, and it says wet paint, you know what the kids are going to do? Is it still wet? I wonder. <laughs> Human nature. So that was not my illustration. Here's my illustration. So um, have any of you ever been ziplining before? Ziplining. Yeah, it's just, it, it took off in the last 30 years. Uh, Karen and I and the boys, we've done it a few times, and I, I remember once we did it in Mexico. A couple of years ago was the last time we've done it in Guatemala and different places. Where you, we did it in Jean, Pastor Ross and I, we were in South Africa. We went on the fastest zip line in the world. It's so fast you have a parachute. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really steep. And you actually get, if you don't have the parachute, if the parachute, you lose the parachute, you make a big splash when you land. <laughs> so it's fun. It's kind of exhilarating. And you go zip lining through the rainforest there in Mexico. And when you go, they sit you down. They give you a harness. They give you gloves. They give you a helmet. They tell you what to take out of your pockets. They then make you watch a video, and they give you a safety briefing. And after they do that, they walk around every person, and they make sure that your harness is fitting correctly. And then you jump off these platforms over gaping yaws of rainforest, and you're trusting this little cable to carry you across. And it's kind of exhilarating as you go floating through the air, and you're looking at all the rainforest and this beautiful scenery. And, and I enjoy it. I got a little bit of fear but a whole lot more fun. You can balance those two things in a life, right? I know that I got, you know, if I follow the instructions of the guide, and if I'm wearing the gloves and I listen carefully and I watch the film and I got my helmet, I got my vest, they checked it all out, and then I always make sure someone much heavier than me goes first. <laughs> when I'm going to, I look for the tourists and I say, uh, Karen, let's get behind them. <laughs> I said, they made it, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and so you, then you have fun, right? You know, in life, you need a certain balance of fear. I'm not afraid when I drive, but I've got enough fear if I see a sign that says, sharp turn, 20 miles an hour, I'm going to slow down because I know what the consequences are. But I'm not afraid of driving. But you need to be afraid of sin because sin is deadly. Yeah, and, you know, it's so sneaky. And so there's this, this balance in the Christian life where these two things coexist, where you can have the joy of the Lord and a healthy fear of God and a fear of sin. Amen? So you've got this cautious faith that you use. Revelation 2.10. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested and you'll have tribulation ten days be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Does he say be faithful five minutes? See if you can be faithful through the church service. <laughs> be faithful unto death. So how long? He that endures, when? Till the end, will be saved. Who's saved? You don't just endure one time. It's a process of sticking with the Lord. Amen? 
Does that make sense? And then faith, true faith, is conditional faith. And I read this verse to you. I want to read it one more time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declared the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if, does that sound like a condition? If you hold fast the word that I preach to you. By the way, John 3.16 is conditional. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish. Whosoever does what? Believes. believes. You know what believes mean? Follow his word, his teaching. You can't say, I believe in Jesus and then completely disregard everything he taught. So believing means be living in him. Amen? Hebrews 3.6, but Christ as a son forever over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. If we hold fast firm to the end. Does that sound like once saved, always saved, or that we need to hang on? We need to keep on going. We need to put our hand to the plow and don't look back. 1 John 1.7 but if we walk in the light, you hear the condition there? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Being a Christian is a daily walk. And if we wake up every day and we say, I'm going to walk with the Lord. Now, you, if you miss a day, it doesn't mean you're lost forever. It's not the occasional good day. It doesn't mean you haven't had your moments we talked about that last week where God said, you know, the kind of a chronic problem in humanity is that we do get attacked, we get tempted, we get discouraged, we often fall. We may have to often repent and weep at the feet of Jesus, but you keep on going. Amen? Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, does that sound clear? Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Isn't that clear? Does that sound like salvation is a one-time thing? You know, being a Christian is like being married. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Can I get an amen? You just got to keep going all the time. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you'll be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. That's also good news. Even those who fell away, if they don't continue in unbelief, they can get grafted back in. Revelation 2.5, remember therefore from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And he's speaking to the church here in Revelation chapter 2. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you are living in known sin and you do not repent, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, if we sin willfully after we've received a knowledge of the truth. Now, Pastor Doug, we've all sinned after we've received the knowledge. The word there, sin, means if we continue to live a life of sin. It's an ongoing verb. If we continue to live a life of sin after we know the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sins. You can't just say, I thank you for your salvation and continue to live for the devil. As so many people claiming the name of Christ are doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. 
But I discipline my body, Paul is speaking, and bring it into subjection. Lest, he said, otherwise it'll be like I've preached to others and I myself become a castaway or disqualified. Paul said, I've daily got to discipline my body. How many of you know that's true? And bring it into subjection to the will of God. Or here I am preaching to everyone else and I'll be lost. He said, we must follow on consistently. How many of you remember the parable in Matthew 18, this unmerciful debtor? He's forgiven this enormous debt, like 10,000 talents. He's forgiven. And he was forgiven. The king wrote forgiven next to his name. But then he went out and he would not share that forgiveness with a fellow servant. His forgiveness was disqualified. It was revoked. So just because you come to the Lord and you are forgiven and you're saved, if you then refuse to live the Christian life and follow his teachings, well, you may have been justified at one point, but the justification evaporates if you do not follow it up with sanctification. The children of Israel were saved from Egypt because of the blood of the Lamb. He brought them into the wilderness and said, I saved you. Here's my law. If you love me, keep my commandments. Those who refused to obey died in the wilderness. Isn't that right? So he saves us first, but then he brings us out and he says, look, now I've shown my love for you. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the Christian faith is a continuing faith. We've sort of said that already. First James, verse 25, first James. James chapter 1, verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, not being a forgetful hearer, but a what? A doer of the work. This one will be blessed. I want to be blessed, don't you? So you can't just be a hearer. He says, you need to hear it, and then you need to do it. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but he that does the will of my Father. Now, I'm not teaching salvation by works. I'm teaching that if you really have faith, it'll be seen in your works. And it's ongoing. God doesn't expect you to know everything in one day. The Bible says, learn to do good. Cease to do evil. Sanctification is a learning process. God is daily working to save us and to teach us, but we must cooperate. Amen? Amen. And be willing make progress. If you've got something that's haunting you and you're not dealing with it, that's not healthy for your soul. And I, I want to emphasize, we talked about this last week, we may make the same mistake time and time again. And we think, God is so tired of hearing me repent over that problem. No, he's not. He's willing to freely forgive. He is long-suffering to us for it. Amen? He's abundant in mercy and pardon. The problem is that you can harden your own heart by not taking the conviction seriously. You've all known people for years, and you know, they'll... Say, oh, you know, I really need to do something about my diet. I really need to do something. I really need to do something. I've got to take better care of my health. And that. But they don't do anything. Then they come home from the doctor, and they get a report that um, you got stage 2 cancer. All of a sudden, they become extremely motivated to finally do something. Don't wait until God has to do something like that to get your attention. You could, 
you can do a lot more than you think you can do if you're motivated. It's amazing how easy it is to resist temptation when our life is on the line. I think we just presume on God's mercy, and that's the danger. We need continuing faith. Now, I want to read something to you from the book of Ezekiel. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. You know, this prophet is, he's an Old Testament prophet, but he's got good New Testament theology also. The whole chapter I recommend, but we don't have time to read it all right now, but he goes back and forth and explains who's saved and who's lost. And you don't need to go to college or high school to understand this. Everybody can understand what this very bright prophet and priest wrote. He says here in verse 21 of Ezekiel 18, But if a wicked man turns from all of his sins which he's committed and keeps my statutes, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he will not die. If that's clear, say amen. amen. But if a righteous man, verse 24, but if a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he was righteous, but he's fallen away, and he does according to all the abominations of the wicked man, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sins which he committed because of them he will die. The Bible's making it pretty clear that it's not a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing following surrender to the king. Amen? And then God says in 20, verse 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And he goes on, he says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will you die? Hey, I want to give you another one from the Old Testament. Go with me to the book of Zechariah. He's got some great, great theology here. Chapter 3, the book of Zechariah, if you make your way through the minor prophets in the Old Testament, just a few prophets before you get to the New Testament in uh, simple terms. I can't give you a page number because we all have different Bibles and, and that's okay. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. The priest represents the people. He intercedes for them. This is a vision. Standing before the angel of the Lord. This may have been the pre-incarnate Christ called the angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right hand to oppose or to accuse him. Revelation says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing the high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you, who has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? I've saved him from destruction, in other words. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments. Priest is not supposed to have filthy garments, and neither is a Christian. We're supposed to have the robe of Christ's righteousness. This is why the devil was accusing him, because of his sins. That's what the filthy garments represent. By the way, the redeemed are clothed in white robes in Revelation. So these are symbols of righteousness and sin. Joshua is clothed with filthy garments, and he's standing before the angel. Then the angel spoke to those who stood by him. His, this is, let's suppose this is Christ. He's talking to attending angels. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I've removed your iniquity. What does the filthy garments represent? Iniquity. How many want their iniquity removed? I've removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. The angels then put these beautiful robes on him. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. By the way, the high priest's turban had a little gold placard and it said, holiness to the Lord on it. Let them put a turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. He's admonishing the high priest who's just gotten the new clothes, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways. That makes it sound like he's got a choice, right? If you walk in my ways, and if you will keep my commandments, then you will also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place to walk among those who stand here. Talking about in the heavenly realms, talking and living with angels. He said, I'm going to give you clean robes. I'm going to save you. Your iniquity is taken away. You're clothed with the robes of righteousness. But now you've got to walk in my ways and keep my commandments. Amen? So, and yet, so much of the Christian world is confused on this subject. We need a continuing faith. We need a confident faith. God doesn't want us to live in fear. What did Paul say as he neared the end? 2 Timothy 1-2, he said, I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. I know. And yeah, we got some verses on the walls here in the sanctuary. 1 John 5-13, these things I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. God wants us to have Confidence. How can you encourage other people about the joy of the Christian life if you're always living in doubt whether or not you're going to make it? Right? They need to see in you that, hey, this works. I can testify it works. I've got peace. I've got hope. I, I have a future. I know who has control of my life. And so you need to have that, that confidence and that peace. And you will have a much more productive life. I remember hearing, uh, I actually got this, this sermon, I was reading a book from uh, J.I. Packer, and he tells a story about when uh, this very wealthy landowner, as he neared the end of his life, he, he wanted to do something nice for his servants, and he had some servants that had worked faithfully for him, and he owned a lot of land, and he said, look, you guys, I've got a beautiful mansion, you've worked for me, I want you to be able to build your own place. He said, I'm going to each give you a section of land on the edge of my property, you've each got 20 acres, and, uh, you know, I'll take care of the deed work, but uh, it's yours. Well, one of them is so excited, he goes and he sees the land. It's already marked off for him, and he goes and he starts to cut down trees, and he starts to build the house, and he starts to plant the fields, and, and uh, his wife and family, are, they're excited, and they're telling all their neighbors about what a wonderful ma master this is they've been working for. The other guy... He says, I've been to the courthouse and they haven't processed the deed yet. And then finally the deed gets processed and he says, I need to take this to an attorney and have it checked out. And he spends all his time second guessing. He says, I don't know why. There must be some, what's the strings attached to this? Why would you just give me this property? And he never really does trust that it's his. At the end of the year, who do you think has the better house and fields and has a more production on their land. The one who believes and acts upon that belief are the one who always doubts. You got a picture on the screen of the Golden Gate Bridge. When the Golden Gate Bridge was being constructed, 
early in the construction, um, 20 men died. It's, it's a very treacherous place if you've ever been uh, during that, out there on that piece of geography. They get storms and it can be very windy and it can be very cold. And these guys were on these heights and they're on the wet iron with all the fog and they're slipping and they're, they're falling to their death. And um, so they got an idea. They said, look, we, you know, we've got to do something to protect these guys. And a guy named Strauss, who was the chief engineer, he's the one who said we need to you know, give them hard hats. And one of the first jobs where they all had to wear hard hats, they wore goggles. He gave them skin cream because they were getting skin burned from the, the sun and the wind up there all the time. And, and he started using safety gear. And finally, they spent $100,000 and they built a net. And if your eyes are real good, you can see the section of bridge that's up at the bottom of it. There's a net hanging all the way across. And the first one who fell into the net was a guy named Al Zampa. They, they called everybody that was caught by the net the halfway to hell club. Al just died in 2020. He was 95 years old. He helped build the Golden Gate Bridge, the Carquinez Bridge. He worked on bridges until he was 65. He loved it. So it's a rough group, but uh, they loved getting out there and just the, the thrill of it all. But he said the interesting thing was there were 10 men that were saved by the net that fell. Some of them got hurt when they hit the net, but they survived. And he said the amazing thing was once they put up the net, their productivity increased 25%. Because the workers had confidence. So that's why I've spent a couple weeks talking about how you can have faith that you're going to make it, it boils down to, do you think you've got a bigger devil or a bigger Jesus? Are we more worried about what the devil's going to do with our life or have more faith in what Jesus can do with our life? There's really only two choices. And Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, if you believe. All things are possible to him that believes. And uh, I thought that was interesting that... Uh, Al Zampa, he was the first to fall in the net. He was also the last one to pass away. God wants us to have a calm faith. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Jesus said, peace, John 14.27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, there's things God tells us to avoid, and there might be elements of fear, but he does not want us to live in fear. He wants us to live in what? Peace. He is the prince of peace. Paul says God offers us a peace that passes understanding. I don't want false security of once saved, always saved, if it's not real. I want the real security based on the teachings of Jesus. And this is what the Lord is offering us. I, I've seen this at the airport when you go, and, and I may have mentioned this before, uh, you can pretty well tell the people who have confirmed flights as opposed to those who are on standby. The people who are on standby know that sometimes they stand by and watch the plane take off. And they're often hovering around the gate as the boarding process is taking place. And you can see them kind of counting hits. And, oh, man, this flight looks full. I don't know if they can have any empty room. And they're praying someone else cancels or is late so that there'll be room for them. They don't look at all peaceful. 
But those that are holding their ticket with a seat number in their hand, they're sitting down, they've got their earbuds in, and they're, they're reading, and they're kicking back, and they check their watch, see when boarding begins. Whole different attitude, right? God wants you to have that kind of peace and confidence, but not, not reckless presumption. Let every man examine himself, whether he be in the faith. There's that balance that we need. You know, one way that I might illustrate this is with a story, true story. Um, so last year, Karen had a big birthday. I'll let her decide if she wants to tell you which one it was. But she had a big birthday, and so she said, I want to go see the pyramids. Her mom and Stephen went to Egypt and saw the pyramids the year before, and so I said, all right, dear, we're going to go. We'll go to Egypt. And since we're going to Egypt, I said, you know, some of the best diving in the world is the Red Sea. I want to, I want to go scuba diving, and Karen did too. And so we actually met with some other believers. We got on a boat where you dive off this boat in the Red Sea, and it was beautiful. And we just had a wonderful time. I don't care so much about the pyramids, but the diving was really nice. And um, <clears throat> I had a near-death experience. Um, what you do is you're, you're living on this boat. You get the, the, the divers, and there's some dive masters and crew and the captain. And... Um, you, you go to different locations and you dive, but they got these rubber boats on the main boat. They're rubber boats with a motor. And um, I'm trying to remember they got a, a name for those. Zodiac. It's called the Zodiac boat. And um, what they do is they take you out to the reef. You're out in the middle of the ocean, but, you know, you've got your diving gear. And, and they drop you off and they say, well, you can go down, you, you know, 80, 100 feet, whatever it is, and here's the dive. They've got a dive plan, and then you swim, and you make your way back up, and we're going to meet you a mile away or whatever it was. So we did this several times. It was great. But one of the first dives, um, I was having real problems. Now, for one thing, I'm one of the oldest people on the trip. So I don't remember not knowing how to swim. I've always been a really good swimmer. I have diving medals for militaries, I, swimming, diving. I, I'm really comfortable in the water. Dad had a pool. And so I, I get in the water and I notice that when I'm trying to surface after one of the first dives, I'm really struggling. Well, let me explain a little bit about dive gear. Of course, you got your flippers, you got your mask, you got your snorkel. Then you've got something, you got vests. It's, you think of it like a safety vest, but it inflates and it deflates. It's a BCD, a buoyancy-controlled device. And so when you've when you got your heavy tank, you know, you'll sink like a rock if you don't have something to keep you floating. So you've got your air tank, which is metal, and you've got you know, your other gear, and you press a button, and this thing fills up with air, and it keeps you buoyant, and you're at the surface. Well, about 10 years ago, a friend gave me all of his dive gear. He said, I barely used it. And I thought, this is great. So I kept planning on using it sometime, sent it to Nathan to t use it in Majuro, and I don't know if he ever did use it. And then, um, so I put it back in the attic. And um, I, I never occurred to me that sitting in the attic at 190 degrees for Sacramento summers for several years would have any effect on it. It looked fine. And so... One of these first dives, I nearly drown because everyone's getting back into the boat and I'm struggling to come up. 
they also put lead weights on a belt. So I got these lead weights, I got the can, and I keep putting air into my BCD, and it's not helping, and I'm kicking for all that I've got to get to the surface, and I'm struggling, I'm kicking my feet with flippers on to get to the surface, and the guy, everyone's gotten in the boat except me, and the guy, the crew guy, he says, all right, toss me your flippers, you can't climb in with your flippers on. So I stop kicking to get my flippers, and now I got one flipper, but I sink down another 12 feet, I'm clicking with the other one to get back up and throw them one, and I'm struggling. I'm, I still got my regulator, I'm going, <gasps> I'm breathing, trying to get them. I throw one flipper in, I go down to try and throw the other flipper in, now I've got no flippers on, and I can't get up to the surface. I am kicking for all of my might, and I'm a good swimmer, I thought, and I'm trying to get to the top, and I finally get to the top, and I think I'm gonna pass out. Now, a trained diver would know that all you do is you pull the release, your weights will fall off, and if that's not enough, then you just disconnect the BCD, you drop it off, and you save your life. But that stuff's expensive. I wasn't gonna, <laughs> I didn't wanna lose that stuff. So I'm nearly dying. I mean, I'm ready to pass out. And I get up and I just get my hand up, and the guy grabs my hand, and I pull myself up, and I hand him my flipper, he throws me in, and then he grabs the back of my BCD, and he pulls me in, and I fall into the boat, and all this water runs out of my vest. The seals had busted. Instead of being full of air, it was full of water. And I had no buoyancy. And I realized, wow, that was really dumb. Now let me tell you, is it ever appropriate to say you're saved? It depends. Depends on who you're talking about. It's one of those things. When he pulled me into the lifeboat, I said, praise God, I have been saved. I wasn't back at the mothership yet. If I wanted to, could I jump overboard? Or could I get tossed overboard? I could. In the waves? Yeah. But as far as I was concerned, I was saved. I was drowning, and now I'm in the boat. See what I'm saying? Doesn't mean you can never be lost. See what I'm saying? And so... As a Christian, when you come to Jesus, he saves you. Your life is different. You are dead. You are alive. You are a new creature. There are so many things different. You're saved in that respect. You don't want to be saying you're saved like a Calvinist might say or some Baptist. That means I can't be lost. It's finished. Even Paul said, I did not count myself to have apprehended, but I press on. Amen? And then finally, the little boat got back to the big boat, and I was so thankful so I traded my vest to someone else. <laughs> I told them it had some problems. And <laughs> I'd give them a discount. <laughs> I tell you, friends, I know what it feels like to put my faith in a vest that ain't working, in a life vest that doesn't work. A lot of people out there that are putting their faith in a salvation that is not going to save them when they get in deep water. You need to know that you've got the real thing and that your faith is based on the promises of God in His Word. Amen? Amen? Through Christ, how many things can I do? I can do all things through Christ. And Jesus can, He can save us if we keep our eyes on Him. The Lord is our light. Amen? Amen.